The excuses from Moses began, if you'll recall, uh, in last week's passage. There's a direct connection between chapter 3 and chapter 4. They, they kind of carry out the same storyline. Moses is, we know this, Moses is God's man for the job, whether he likes it or not. But Moses will attempt in this passage before us, as we transition to to chapter 4, he's going to attempt to grapple and wrestle with God over his calling. I want to quickly summarize chapter 4 for you, and then we're going to take it in chunks this morning so that we understand where we're headed, kind of the trajectory of the morning as we travel through uh, Exodus chapter 4. Chapter 4 begins uh, with the weakness and excuses of Moses ramping up. It began back in chapter 3 when he, he asked God, who should I tell the Israelites is sending me? What's your name? And now we see the, the weakness and excuses of Moses ramping up as we head into chapter 4, in which God will answer his weakness with signs that he will give him. This followed by Moses, where he, he vehemently denies the calling that God has put before him. He gets, Don't send me, God. Send somebody else. In which God answers by offering Moses' brother, Aaron, to assist him. The passage then delves into Moses' request to Jethro, if you'll recall, that's his father-in-law, to leave Midian and return to Egypt to carry out the work that God has called him to. The twists and turns begin here. We'll see some interesting issues arise in chapter 4. If you've read chapter 4, you'll know there's a, there's a few difficulties with this chapter, such as God nearly killing Moses over the issue of uh, his uncircumcised son, and some peculiar wording of God hardening Pharaoh's heart to carry out his purpose of releasing his people. But we begin this morning with our first point that we draw from the text, God's grace and power in weakness. God's grace and power in weakness. We're going to look to verses 1 to 9 in chapter 4 now. If you'll look to your Bibles or look to the screens, it says, Then Moses answered, But behold... They will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. So do you see the weakness there from Moses? As he questions God, gives excuses as to why he shouldn't go. But the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it, right? Rightly so. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. If, if you've ever dealt with snakes before, that's the wrong end of the snake to pick it up. Okay, I, I like National Geographic. My son and I watch Nat Geo all the time. And when you pick up a snake, you pick it up right behind the head. Pick it up by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And Moses put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. In verse 9, if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, 
You shall take some water from the Nile, that is the Nile River, and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Moses here is is commissioned by God, and the primary task is that of telling the Israelites that God has sent him, Moses, to deliver them from Pharaoh, to deliver them from slavery. He's to speak a message of deliverance to his people. But here we find the excuses and the weakness flowing out of Moses. They will not believe me. And yet we also witness the grace of God towards Moses in this moment, that in the weakness and unbelief of Moses, the grace and power of God is evident. God grants Moses signs to convince the Israelites that he has been, in fact, sent by God. These signs that God gives convey the absolute power that God wields. As if coming, if you, if you recall the scene, coming to Moses in a bush that burns but is not consumed is not enough sign, right? Moses is given the sign of his humble staff made into a snake, his hand being withered by a nasty skin disease, and if necessary, this ultimate display, turning water from the Nile River into blood. Why is that such a huge display of the power of God? Because in the context here, the Nile River in this particular region, and especially to the Egyptians, is, it's a god. It's a god to them. The Nile is the source of life to the Egyptian region. It provides water, it waters their crops, it gives life, and it takes life away. I think it's safe to assume this affinity towards the Nile River had likely also influenced the Israelites. They had been there for hundreds of years. And surely this sign shows the absolute power of God, that he can take their little G-God, the Nile River, he can take water from it and turn it into blood on the dry ground. That the one true God is truly the giver of life and the one who can take away life. And yet we look at this scene, how can now we relate to this? How do we relate to Moses in his commission by God? You see, church, we too are are commissioned, just like Moses, to bring a message. The message of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. We can likely relate to the weakness of Moses. Have you ever found yourself asking these questions? God, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't believe the message I'm bringing to them? And none of us, as far as I know, possess miraculous signs to offer confirmation to our gospel witness. Can anybody turn a staff into a snake? I can't. And the world cries out when we come to them with the good news of Jesus. They say things like, prove it. Show me a sign. Or perhaps you've gotten this question. Where was God when this particular thing happened to me or somebody that I love? Have you ever been asked that question? And so we offer them the only sign that we have. These are the signs that we have. We have the cross and we have the resurrection of Jesus. 
These are the signs that God has now granted us. In our weakness that we may convey the strength of God. Paul says as much in in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 22. He says along these lines, some demand signs, some demand wisdom, but but we preach Christ crucified. Here's your sign. God's grace and power are evident in the signs he grants Moses in the midst of weakness and objection. For us, God's grace is evident in the weakness of the body of Jesus on the cross where he died for our sins. God's power is evident in the glorious resurrection of Jesus. When the word of God says that he was raised by the Holy Spirit, the word of God says it was the same power. That word for power is the word that we have our modern day English word of dynamite. I've been in Kentucky for a few years and around 4th of July, folks around here be blown off stuff that sounds like dynamite, right? That's powerful. God's power is evident in the glorious resurrection of Jesus, where Jesus was raised to new life. And so in our weakness, we preach Christ crucified. But we don't go it alone. It brings us to our second point that we'll draw from chapter 4. God's grace and power in the help of others. God's grace and power in the help of others. We're going to look at three others that help Moses. I want you to, if you don't get anything else, I want you to hear this. You're not alone. You're not alone. God's people are never meant to go it alone. God shows his grace and power in the help of others. And the first other that we will explore is this, is God himself. God himself helps you. Verses 10 to 12 in chapter 4. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Listen to God's response. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? You're going to tell me that you're slow to speech? I made your mouth and I put the words in it. God says, now therefore go and, what? I will be your mouth. I am with you, God says. And teach you what you shall speak. I will be with you and I will teach you. We hear yet another excuse from Moses. Another point of weakness. I'm not a good speaker. I don't have the words, God. I would venture to guess this is likely the number one reason why people will not share about their faith. They're afraid, they're afraid what? I'm, I'm going to say something, what? Wrong. I'm going to get it wrong. Or, I don't have all the answers. What if they ask me a question and I can't answer it? As if our God 
is constricted by our individual weaknesses. God here promises Moses very specifically, I will be with your mouth. That's your excuse? I will be with your mouth. And then even earlier in Exodus 3.12, God said exactly this, I will be with you. I will be with you. God is with him. And Christian, God is with you. Echoes of Jesus' words to his disciples are evident here. When Jesus declares in Acts 1.8, he is resurrected from the dead, he's standing before his disciples, and he's getting ready to ascend to heaven to take his throne, and he says these words in Acts 1.8, but you will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You see, we have so much in common with Moses I don't speak well. I don't have the answers. I need to remain silent until I can learn a little bit more. God, Give me some more time, God. But God has promised, I will be with you. Jesus has said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I'd say we have an even more intimate relationship with God than Moses had. Because God is where, Christian? He is within us. His Spirit has been poured out upon you so that you may speak with boldness about the goodness of God. You may speak with boldness about the grace of God. You may speak with boldness about salvation in God. You may speak with boldness about the glory of God. And also, so we have this this vertical help, right, with God. But God also offers the help, the horizontal help, look around the room of other fellow men and women. We'll look at Aaron first. It's our second point. Aaron. Verses 13 to 17. We're going to get to the heart of the matter here with Moses. Hear this. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send somebody else. Have you been there before? God, can you just... Pick somebody else to do this, please. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. Interesting that God already knew that that was going to happen. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. The help of another is now available. Moses is not to go it alone. His weakness explodes in this scene. He basically refuses his calling 
and God's grace abounds. Even in the midst of anger, God is patient with Moses. It says his anger was kindled against him, but even in that, God is patient with Moses. Aren't you thankful for that patience? Why? Because this response from Moses has not caught God off guard. His plan is perfect. He's been putting the pieces together long before Moses' Moses' refusal. Remember what he said, Behold, of Aaron, Behold, he is coming out to meet you. Immediately after Moses says, Hey, can somebody else do this? God answers, Aaron's already on his way. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Aaron will be for him a mouthpiece, a brother in arms, a helper to accomplish the task. And I love those words there. He will be glad in his heart to do that, to go and see his brother. Together they can accomplish much. And together, every weak excuse that Moses has put forth has been answered by God. And I believe also it's a subtle reminder that we do not walk the calling of God alone. There are no solo Christians. There's not one solo Christian. We must practice our faith in community, in fellowship with other believers. We must be united together to carry out our calling to go forth and make disciples, to speak the message of deliverance that God has granted to us, that Jesus has called us to carry out, and that the Spirit has filled and empowered us to accomplish. Do you hear how each member of the Trinity is uh, committed to that call? God within us, the Holy Spirit within us, and our brothers and sisters in Christ beside us. We can accomplish much for the kingdom of God through that. Lastly, we see the help of Moses' wife, Zipporah. Zipporah. When I was studying, if you've read through Exodus chapter 4, you come to verses 24 to 26, and it's, it's just kind of odd sitting there. If you haven't read it before, if it's not jarring your memory, we'll get there in just a second. But I have to set the stage for it, because we're not going to be able to read through the entirety of the passage leading up to verses 24 to 26. To summarize, so Moses has now... He's put up his objections. God has answered those. He's given him his brother Moses. Now Moses has agreed with God to his calling. He's gone back to his father-in-law Jethro and is requested to go back to Egypt to see if his people are still alive. The Lord also calls Moses to not only speak to the Israelites, but also to speak to Pharaoh. And now we're presented with this peculiar passage that comes to us in verses 24 to 26. 
The odd thing is, is we've had all these objections and weakness and God answering, and it seems that the plan is certain, and then we come to verse 24, and it says, at a lodging place, on the way, the Lord met him, the him here I believe is Moses, and sought to put him to death. That's odd. Then Zipporah, if you recall, Zipporah is Moses' wife, took a flint, we're going to get crazy here, and cut off her son's foreskin, touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he, that is God, let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. What in the world is going on in this passage? Would God dare kill Moses and derail his plan of deliverance? No. Why? Because a faithful wife comes into the picture. One who understands the gravity and weight of the covenant to which Moses has been called and attached to by his relatives. One that is sealed with the sign of circumcision. Moses has, what's happened, what's occurred here, I believe, is that Moses has neglected his leadership at home. It is apparent that he has not sealed his son with the sign that God has called every Israelite male to be marked by. God's anger at this point has moved into righteous wrath. Because Moses has disobeyed God. This disobedience has crossed the line. But thankfully, the help of another saves Moses. The help of Zipporah. His wife, faithful to God, protects Moses by doing what he did not do. And so we have two pictures here that we can draw some application from. Have you ever looked at verses 24 and 26 and say, what does this mean to me? I hope that you find application here this morning. Here's the first one. Oftentimes it's, it's the jarring words or actions of our brothers and sisters in Christ that awaken us from our neglect or our blind spots in life. Moses had had neglected what he was supposed to do as a father in leading his family. It was his wife's actions that saved him. And sometimes it's, it's the actions of our brothers and sisters in Christ that jar us and awaken us to know where I'm in a path of disobedience and I need to be on a path of obedience to God. I think we see that pictured here in Zipporah's actions. someone acting on our behalf. We need each other, church, to be accountable to God's commands. Moreover, the second point, Zipporah's intervention is a reminder of the intervention of Jesus who is to come. She's a type and shadow of Christ. Moses sinned against God and rightly deserved God's wrath, but but his wife intervened and made right the wrongs that he had committed. Does that sound familiar? So too has Jesus done for us. All our sins were placed on him at the cross, 
And he has delivered us from God's certain wrath through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. And so God's grace and power are evident in the help of others. God himself is with Moses. His brother is beside him and his wife intervening for him. Lastly, point number three. We see God's grace in the protection of his people and the power of his word. God's grace in the protection of his people and the power of his word. Verses 21 to 23. We're going to look at this interaction with Pharaoh first. It's going to present us with some difficulties that we're going to try to unpack just a little bit this morning. Verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. So God's instructing here, not only are you supposed to do this before the elders in Israel to convince them that God has come to deliver them, but also do these things before Pharaoh. Then it says this, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Things are getting serious. It's getting personal. Pharaoh, you're going to mess with my kids? I'm going to mess with your kids. Notice the language. Israel is my, what? Firstborn son. Let them go or I will take your firstborn son. We see in this passage a collision of of the father's love and his wrath. The protection of God is evident here. His fatherly love... The people will be delivered even if it takes God hardening the heart of Pharaoh to accomplish this task. God will not be defeated. Little God-man Pharaoh will not be greater than God. God will put him in his place. Now we have a a difficult statement that I hope... I'm going to hit a little bit on this... This idea, it says, I will harden his heart. What does that mean? Well, if you can answer that, you're up there with the best of the theologians because people have been wrestling with this idea and this concept for thousands of years. But I hope to shed a little bit of light on it if you turn to Romans chapter 9 because Paul actually hits on this in Romans 9. Verses 14 to 23. I'm going to be honest with you. Romans 9 is another highly uh, debated text and often wrestled over. I hope to draw some truth from verses 14 to 23 this morning, if you look along with me. Paul says this, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, that's interesting. For this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Does that sound familiar to the passage that we're in? You will say to me, then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? And Paul says this, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Wow, real easy stuff to wrestle with on a Sunday morning. When I come across a difficult section such as this one, I mean, we could just gloss over this and not talk about it, but let's try to a little bit this morning. When I come across a difficult section such as this one, it stirs within me to to dig deeper into the Word and see what God's Word has to say about these things. And it just so happens that Paul hits on that in in Romans chapter 9. And so I urge you to dig deeper into God's word and search these things out. Search for the truth. Search to see what God is teaching us here, but also be mindful of the good news that we find in a passage like Deuteronomy 29, 29, where it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Thank you, Jesus, because I don't understand all that's going on here. But his word comforts me in saying, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And so my hope is when when you come across a passage like this that challenges us, that we search the scriptures to explain Until we come to this place where it's like, I I just don't understand God. And then we can conclude, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Because the truth of the matter is, we we will never be able to plumb the depths of our God. He's just too great. He's too great for our mere human understanding. And I'm thankful for that. And I believe, in, I believe in God's sovereignty. I believe in his providence. And I believe in human volition or the human will. And I believe that these three things, when they collide together, are one of those that we can look at Deuteronomy 29, 29 and say, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Thank you, Lord, for being bigger than me. All right, back into the passage. 
So we see God's grace and the protection of his people and the power of his word. The protection now, if we, we move our, our gaze from Pharaoh now to the Israelites, this passage ends just beautifully. The protection of the Israelites is evident. So also is the power of the word of God. The word of God is so powerful, right? The word of God is so powerful that God, through his word, spoke things into existence from nothing. The word of God is so powerful that he has spoken through prophets long ago. The word of God is so powerful that he has spoken through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And he continues to speak to us through the power of his word that we have in the Holy Bible, in the scriptures. The word creates, the word redeems, the word transforms. Exodus 29, or chapter 4, verses 29 to 31. Listen to this. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Let's pause here, because we've, we've been on a roller coaster this morning. We've seen Moses' weakness. We've seen Moses say, God, I don't want to do this. We've seen God raise up Aaron to help him. Moses almost dies because his kid's not circumcised. His wife steps in and intervenes. We've res- wrestled with God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And then now we come to and land at this point in the chapter 4. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And hear this. Aaron spoke all the words. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And did the signs in the sight of the people. <laughs> and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, what was their response? They bowed their heads and worshipped. Isn't that beautiful? Church, do you see what happens when you speak the word of God? You see the power of God's word? The word of God is so powerful That it's the only word that demands a response every time it's spoken. God's word demands a response. When someone preaches the gospel, everybody in the room has to respond to it. They don't get to just say, I don't know about that one. They are either transformed by it, or they are hardened to it. There's no in-between. The word of God hardened the heart of Pharaoh and it brought belief and worship to the elders of Israel. They heard the word of God and it says that they believed. And when they understood that God heard their cries, has come down to save them, what was their response to God? They bowed their heads and worshipped. They responded to God. The church, may the word of God evoke the same response from us today. The word of God demands a response. Looking back to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 22 to 25, he said, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. 
a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So church, I call upon you in the name of Jesus this morning. The one who lived perfectly for you died on a cross in your place, rose from the dead on the third day and ascended to heaven in glory. I call upon you in his name. Believe. Believe. He has heard your affliction. 